to get right into the message. Jesus is giving uh, a word to his disciples. They're getting ready to go through a bunch of stuff. And he tells them not to lose heart. And he says, I'm going to take care of you, but I've got to go away for a while, and I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you can also be there. And the way you know, and Thomas speaks up. He said, how can we know the way? Well, we're living in similar times where there are so many changes going on, it's kind of hard to figure out where we're going. So a lot of us have learned about GPS. We've learned about ways. We've learned different apps that help us navigate. That's the word today that we were taught about 15 years ago as postmodernism started really getting a hold of our thought patterns, and we no longer were using expressions of landscape and mapping things that were consistent. The word was we have to learn how to navigate as if it's now nautical, and we're just going with what we have to deal with as far as the winds and the waves. And a lot of us can identify with that now. I have a poem that I want to share with you. It's short but many years ago, I was uh, in school theology, and, and I was doing a paper, and I, I decided to do a paper on the formation of youth work in the denomination of the Church of God. And as I went over to the research center, I opened up a, uh, the first printed lighted pathway magazine. Some of you remember that, that title when you were very young. And in that first edition was a poem entitled, The Bridge. And it simply reads, an old man, <clears throat> not talking about me now, going on a lone highway, came at evening cold and gray to a chasm deep, vast, and wide. The old man crossed in twilight dim. The sullen stream had no fears for him. But he turned when safe on the other side and built a bridge to span the tide. Old man, said a fellow pilgrim near, you are wasting your time with building here. You'll never pass this way again. Your journey will end with the closing day. You have crossed the chasm deep and wide. Why build you this bridge at eventide? The builder lifted his old gray head. Good friend, in the way I've come, he said, there followeth after me today a youth whose feet must pass this way. The stream that has been naught to me to the fair-haired youth might a pitfall be. He too must cross in the twilight dim. Good friend, I'm building the bridge for him. We carry that responsibility. And so in this time in which we're living, we, we find ourselves asking all the time, where am I going? And how do I get there? No, I don't know the way. I don't know how to get there. Can you give me direction? Proverbs 14 and 22 is a verse many of us have read or heard multiple times in our life. When it says, there is a way that seemeth right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. There has been many a pilgrim traveling, thinking they're going on the right path, only to find out that there's a pitfall. They had no idea, no warning. They had no previous knowledge, no road signs, 
and they came to their own death. We know that that's not only in the natural world, but it happens in the soulish world, in the spiritual world. We find ourselves struggling of which way to go. So I want you to turn with me to Judges chapter 17. You'll recognize a verse in this, and I'm actually going to read the entire chapter, 13 verses. That's not something I typically do. And I would say, as we finish reading this, that many, if all, would say, I've really never read that. I know a verse of it that's repeated, but I've never really read the story around it. Would you stand with me here in person? Those of you streaming, join us as well. Judges chapter 17, verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 11,000, excuse me, 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. His mother said, well, bless me, my son, by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image, a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons. Look at the, who ordained. The mother ordained her own son who became his priest. And so in those days, here's the verse you may recognize, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. Understand the priestly tribe, okay? And he sojourned there, and the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite. And the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. God bless you. You may be seated. What an incredible story. And if you're just reading it real quickly, it sounds like, Aw, that's such a nice story. We got all kind of priests in this house. We must be blessed. And we've got shrines. And we've got idols, and we've got things to pray to. 
Again, this verse that you may have recognized, again, there was no king, there was no authority. Therefore, everybody just did what seemeth right in their own eyes. And that's the real question today with us, isn't it? Do we always do the right thing? This means no. This present culture we live in is spinning. Again, I've made this statement more than once. If you ask me for a one-word definition of our present culture, I would use the word confused. What we knew yesterday has changed. We are learning new words weekly. We are learning new expressions constantly. We just think we joined the latest up-to-date club only to find out that is outdated and there's a new word. And what do I have to do to be popular in this group? And it isn't just the young that are challenged with this. There's many voices spinning constantly. So where do we go? How do we go? Where, we don't know the way. How do I get to where I want to go? In this story here, we find something that continued to deteriorate even though they were doing what seemed to be right. I, you know, we need to have something to worship. So we'll take the very thing we've been blessed with and make out of it an image. It reminds us of another biblical story, doesn't it? To where there was people in a wilderness that had been delivered from bondage of over 400 years. Moses goes to the mountain to receive a fresh word from the Lord and direction, authority. But right at the base of the mountain, they already was taking their spoils from the land of Egypt and melting down those metals. And finally, when Moses comes down and finds his own brother, Aaron, who was a priest, he said, what are you doing? He said, you know, it was the craziest thing. We took all these earrings and all these necklaces, all this metal, threw it in the fire, and poof, a cow came out of there. If you don't believe me, read it for yourself. There's something about us that we know we ought to worship something. The challenge we have is authority. In this story, there was no king, so what else are you going to do? If no one's telling you where to go and how to do it, and laying down law, i got to do something. The thing we battle today, and we know it biblically, but we have to remind ourselves is there is a spirit that has wrapped its tentacles around this globe, and it's a spirit of lawlessness. Everything is challenged. We don't really want a pastor. Not really. Not, not if that pastor takes authority over what we're doing. We just like somebody that tells good stories and is nice to us and is there when we need them. But I don't want anybody having authority. I don't need police. I don't need judges. I don't need teachers. But it goes beyond that, doesn't it? Here, it felt like they were doing the right thing. It seemed right. If you'll take this story for what it is saying and not read any bias that you previously may have, what else are we going to do? There's no authority in our life, so we're just going to do what seems right. It seemed right to have an image in the house. It seemed right to take a portion of that. Kind of sounds like tithe, doesn't it? 
And we're going to take that and we're going to reciprocate it and give thanks to something. So we'll make an image. Now at least we've got something to worship and to give thanks to. And you know what? If we're going to do that, then we've got to have some kind of priest. So, son, come here. You be my priest. And the story even spun crazier than that because now it just happened to be a random traveler coming from the promised land. A Levitical priest. Oh, my goodness. All the work we've been doing in prayer is paying off. Now we got a real priest. The sadness of this is the priest didn't stay true to what he knew. Oh, I'm getting a salary. <laughs> I got new clothes. It's a pretty good deal. I'll just stay right here. And it sounded like at the end of the story, they were all joined hands and saying, Kumbaya. Today, our youngest generation is greatly challenged because what they've been conditioned is to believe that that which is truth is not true until they choose it to be so. It seemed right. In other words, for us of older, we know what that statement really means. There is no such thing any longer of objective truth. It now is subjective. It seemeth right to me. But is it leading us in the right path? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But again, for Thomas, Thomas cries, but we don't know the way. We need to find that out. You see, just because the question is, just because I believe, is that enough? Belief is important, but is it enough? You see, I could believe that I'm young, tall, dark, and handsome. But that doesn't make it so, does it? So where, where do we go with this? God has given us free will. Our attitudes and our actions, where do they come from? The actions that I have protruded today, where did those actions come from? What caused me to act that way? Anybody ever hear the word attitude? Sometimes they're good, sometimes they stink. But what, where did that attitude come from? Has anyone ever said to you, you didn't used to act that way? Your attitude stinks. You used to. You, you, uh, so what changes our attitudes? What changes our actions? They spring from what we value, our value system. When we're younger, we value certain things. As we get older, some of those things stay with us. Other things change because no longer is it needed. We need something different in this particular age. That's the standard and so we base that on that which we value. So you see, beliefs lead us to our values, which leads us, of course, to our actions. But is belief enough? The answer is no. We find Thomas. Thomas, again, is the one that asks, no, we don't, or it made the statement, no, we don't know the way. How can we know the way? Then he asks. 
we, we're reminded of another story after the suffering, the passion of Jesus, his death on the cross, buried in a tomb, resurrected on the third day. Do we believe that? Well, here is this first century group that had walked with Jesus in the flesh. They knew of his death. They knew of his burial. And now we know that he's resurrected and he's already met with seven of his disciples. But Thomas was not there. A week later, Jesus is meeting with them again and Thomas is there. The Bible says that the doors were closed, the windows were closed, but Jesus was in the room with them. How did he get there? You see, when you read the previous gospel, we know for those first seven disciples, Jesus came in readily and said to them, see my hands? See my side? See where I've been pierced? Touch it. Is this what stimulated Thomas then when he wasn't present there? He now sees Jesus there and he said, unless I get to touch and see him, I'm, I'm not going to believe. I'm never going to believe unless I have evidence. How many ever heard the expression doubting Thomas? But is that a fair assessment of Thomas? I don't believe that it is. You see, as I read Scripture, I, I, I so much put myself in the pages. What would I do in that situation? If Jesus had been hung on a cross and you witnessed it and a barrel, wouldn't it be hard to believe that he's still alive? Sure, it'd be hard to believe. So where do we go from here with this belief? It is Thomas again asking, how can I know? And now later on, I, I'm not going to believe until... You see, does the scripture support what he did? Let me give you another major player in scripture who Jesus said of this person, there's not been a greater person ever born to a woman than his cousin John, John the Baptist. John's now incarcerated. He knew his death was imminent. Some of the disciples of Jesus came by and did prison ministry and got to visit him in jail. And as they come to him, John asked them, when you see him, will you ask him, is he the one? Is he the one we've been looking for? This is the same John who baptized Jesus who witnessed the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove coming upon him and heard the voice of the Heavenly Father speaking out of the heavens. This is my son in whom I'm pleased. This is the same John who now is asking for evidence. And so the disciples, they get to Jesus and they said, this is what John's asking. I love how Jesus answered. He said, Will you just tell John what you've evidenced? Tell him that the blind can see again, that the lame can walk again, that the leper can be cleansed, that the dead 
can be alive and that the good news is being preached to the poor, that there's hope, that even though you're not born into wealth, that you can be rich in God. Does other scripture support this position? Sure it does. Malachi 3, this is one of our greatest passages as we deal with rendering unto God and giving tithe unto God and giving back to God, being grateful unto God and sowing it a seed at the same time. When God says himself, test me in this. See if I won't bless you if you're obedient to my word. We find in 1 John chapter 4, here is John the Beloved, who now is the last survivor of the original apostles. And now he's an old man, preaching to the second and third generation past his own generation. And he's building a bridge so that they may know. And what does he instruct? Test the spirits. Try the spirits and see if they hold up to a standard, the Word of God itself. You see, why, why go through all this? Because we're living in a time when that which we knew yesterday has evaporated, has changed. Many of us would be honest to say today, you know, I struggle at times to continue to believe at one time, it was easy to believe, but now I'm older. I'm going through life. I'm challenged with things. Is there a God? And does he know my name? Does he truly know me intimately? Can, does he really know how many hairs I have on my head like scriptures bear to be true? Because it seems like times when I try to talk to him, I don't hear anything coming back. How many's with me? I believe, but it's like another person shared in Scripture. I believe, but help my unbelief. I, I, which way do I go? Things that I depended on. I can remember as a very young child, I was five, six, seven years old, eight or nine maybe at the most. My father had a world that was systematic, routine. My father would have lived in a three-mile radius and been content. Anytime we talked to him about vacation, I've already seen the world. Dad, that was the Second World War, and everything was blown up back then. True. Dad had his home, his kids' schools, the bank that he used, his church, and his employment right there. And I can remember vividly going into Westside Savings and Federal Loan right there on Main Street. And as we're walking in, no one gave Dad a notice. They were sold out, and another bank bought them out. It was like the end of the world for Dad. Nobody told me about this. That which I've known forever has changed. My dad wasn't happy about it. That bank got bought out so many times in the next 10 years, it wasn't even worth talking about. And I can remember the emotions of my dad. This is the first legitimate thing that's really changed. 
But you and I live in a time where, okay, I know what your name is today, but what's it going to be tomorrow? Spinning, spinning, spinning. What keeps us going? There's a word that is so important to us, and it's the word convictions. That which grounds us. That which keeps us. We, we're living in a time, and I've heard this expression multiple times, just perusing different broadcasts and podcasts and, and programs, sitcoms, just sit-down interviews, and this is real typical of our day when somebody will talk about a lifestyle that's different than theirs, and they'll say, well, you know, the heart wants what the heart wants. Oh, that's such a nice statement, but is it? There's a way that seemeth right, but is it right? How do I know the way? Having convictions is, is being thoroughly convinced. These convictions, I, I thought about it. What else can we just parallel? And I, I can remember as a young driver, I, I was driving buses when I was a teenager. I was a typical teenager. If I had an engine and you had an accelerator, I wanted to just see how fast that thing would go. Man, it was standard transmission back then, man. And once I popped that thing past second, getting the third, I'm ready to pull down fourth and have that thing roar. And here I'm going 55, ready to go 110 in that bus. Whoa. What is wrong with this bus? I learned a word. There was a governor. <laughs> you know you hurt me when you laugh like that. I had two more inches of pedal. I had all kind of horses under the hood that just wanted to get out of the stall. I was doing so good. Oh. That was the worst sound in the world. Somebody made sure I didn't go any faster than 55. The medical world has learned things like blockers, hormone blockers, different things to, to corral something. Computers, programs, they have passwords. I want to get in there. I want to know, but I've got to have the password. Unless you hack something and you know who you are. Stops, limiters, all these expressions, parameters. These are what convictions are. Paul put it this way. I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I commit to him. I'm convinced. I'm persuaded. I have conviction. My circumstance may be dictating one thing, but I know that I know that I know. Yes, I believe. But I struggle at times with belief. How do I get it? What do I value? God, I value your word. I value your character. I value how you so love the world. That's what will keep me. 
to doing what's right. That which seemeth right, if you'll stand with me today. Sometimes elusive. Sometimes elusive. 